a special edition of the Darden Admissions Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Twitty, and you are listening to a new episode. So on this episode of the podcast, I'm excited to feature my recent conversation with Lily Powell. Lily is a professor in the communication faculty here at the Darden School of Business, and we recorded this conversation as part of our ongoing Office Hour series we've been featuring here on the podcast over the summer. This conversation touches on a lot of different topics that feel very relevant and timely right now. Mindfulness, resilience, Lily's work with the School of Nursing here at the University of Virginia. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. So without further ado, here's my interview with Professor Lily Powell. Lily, let's talk about you. Tell us a little bit more about who you are and your background. Well, that's such a broad question. Um, but um Oh, let's see. Uh, I, I am an army brat. I think that's a, that's something that is um, characteristic of me. Um, my dad was in the army. He was a officer in the, um, in the military and um, that had a profound impact on my life. Um, I was born in Germany. Uh, we moved quite, quite a lot when I was a kid um, every two or three years and um, there are certain characteristics of army brats that um, those who know them, um, I hope, appreciate. Um, we tend to make friends easily. We like to fit in. We uh, are often um, both very respectful, but also a little bit irreverent um, about authority. And um, and if I think back on it, that that actually has carried forward into my Work, my work life, you know, I've been curious for a long time about what makes people follow somebody else. You know, what is it about a leader that allows them to use words and symbols to influence other people to do the work that they need them to do? And so that has informed um, my academic life which started off in um, communication studies. And my specialty was in rhetoric, which is the study of how language and symbols influence people. And I also had a deep interest in performance studies, which is a related field, which looks at um, how ritual and theater is used to build communities and a sense of identity and create meaning among people. So I didn't start off um, being interested in business, to be honest. Um, I uh, actually came in through uh, the leadership door. And so when I was at Northwestern doing my PhD, I helped to start a new undergraduate leadership certificate program with a grant from the W.K. Kellogg um, Foundation. And through that, I got to know case studies um, and I got to know a little bit more about business. And then Flash forward, I'd finished um, most of my work and I was thinking about what's next for me. So I did start looking at at business schools and then I wound up at Darden. So, yeah. So what stood out to you about Darden? Uh, we've had, it's been fun to kind of hear the faculty stories as to what led them here. Uh, Greg, for example, is an alum. So he was a student and now, now teaching. Uh, but for other folks, maybe there was a connection to the University of Virginia along the way. Maybe there wasn't. So how did you end up at Darden? Well, I'm, I'm one of those who has a, a university connection too. I have two uh, degrees from the university, undergraduate degree in psychology and rhetoric and communication studies, and then a master's degree in rhetoric and communication studies. And from there, I went on for the PhD at Northwestern. But um, yeah, it's, they call it the hook for, the re- for a good reason, right? Um, 
the sea is a hook, but the place is a hook too, you know, um, wanting to um, come back to Charlottesville is not an uncommon um, thing. So when I was kind of done with Chicago winters, quite honestly, I was thinking about, well, maybe let's look at Charlottesville. So that was honestly my first um, thought. Uh, and I looked around at, well, what's going on at the university? And one of my former TAs was working at Darden at the time, um, Ros Byrne. And I just connected with her and she said, oh yeah, you know, we, we teach communication classes here. Maybe you should talk to the head of the course. And so I did. And, and you know, one thing led to another. I applied for other jobs too, but in the end, this just felt like a good fit. What do you enjoy about teaching at Darden? Oh gosh, I, I really love the conversational pedagogy that we have. Um, in fact, now when I have to give a lecture, I'm kind of going, can I do this? You know, <laughs> because I feed off the energy so much of the students and, and they are such um, co-creators in the experience. And for me, it keeps me on my toes. I learn something every time I teach, which is, I guess, most faculty are learning junkies of a kind, you know, and so I count myself among them. So that that's really what keeps me going with teaching at Darden. It must be particularly interesting given what you teach and communication mm -hmm. to kind of be in the room, everybody looking at the same problem, how you might message about something or the approach to a particular thing. I would think that would be particularly fascinating. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it operates on at least two levels. One is it's the content of the course is communication. And our our Darden classrooms are very communication intensive, right? So while we're talking about communication, we're also doing communication. And so how you uh, present yourself in class, hearing your voice in the room, working through all of the inner noise that sometimes comes up around that, um, or getting over thresholds of, of reticence uh, is all a part of the work. And in the communication classes, especially when we are early in the first year experience, we really pride ourselves on being able to help students make that transition into the classroom. It does feel like that's a thing that every student works through, that kind of getting comfortable with speaking, contributing in class, finding their voice. I mean, we have videos on our YouTube channel about this, but it, it does feel really authentic to the experience. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's it's part of the hidden curriculum. You know, there isn't a course in it, uh, but you do it every single day. And so because of it, you're learning about norms for um, constructive debate. You're learning about how to frame an argument, how to make the case. You're learning too about how to say with integrity, you know, I don't really know, help me understand what you do. And I think that that's the thing that often students forget is that it's totally okay not to know. You'll never know as a leader, everything you need to know. That's why you have a team. Team helps you have like the extended brain, right? Your job as leader is to get the best knowledge out of everyone so you all can make a good decision. You also have a joint appointment with the School of Nursing, uh, and that's that has to have been interesting for you, working with business students and obviously working with nursing students too. Yeah, it's a it's an unusual combi combination, but 
It makes sense if you think about leadership communication and leading mindfully being the connective tissue between the two. Um, the way it came about, I wasn't, that was another thing I wasn't really looking for, but I had been teaching uh, an executive education course called Leading Mindfully with my colleague, Jeremy Hunter from um, the Drucker School at Claremont University. And uh, the Dean of the School of Nursing took our course. And um, she just said, you know what, everything you're teaching, nurses need to understand. We need to have more of a voice in healthcare and we need to provide more compassionate care for people, but a lot gets in the way, you know, come on over and help us do that. And I was, was like, no way, you know, <laughs> nursing, I was not looking for that, but the more I got to know about it, the more intriguing it was. And I think the stereotype with nurses is just the image of a bedside nurse, but in actuality, nurses run hospitals. Nurses are um, advocates, not only for patients, but for making organizations work and run. And so um, in those roles, uh, they, they often need some support uh, around leading mindfully. Did you know that about nurses before you came to this role, that they are the ones in many ways kind of driving everything? Well, kind of, sort of. I, I grew up with a nurse. Um, so my dad was an army officer. My mother was a nurse. And so um, I, I was exposed to the profession through her. And um, I don't know, maybe being an army wife, I, I, you know, it makes you a little tough. And so, um, you know, nurses for all their caring are also tough cookies. And, um, and rightfully so. They do some of the most difficult work any of us could imagine. So, um, but I didn't know the full extent of the organizational work that they did. And, and so there are nurses now who uh, own companies. There are nurses who uh, are policy advocates. There are nurses who are on, uh, on various boards. Nurses have an, an incredibly important role to play in society that goes well beyond the bedside. Well, let's talk about the courses you teach. So you are teaching at Darden. You're also teaching in the School of Nursing. What courses are, are you teaching right now or maybe in the next next year or so? Yeah, I, I think every Darden professor identifies themselves primarily or at least firstly through the required courses that they teach. And so I'm on the communication faculty. So I teach a required course called Leadership Communication. In the MBA program, uh, leadership communication um, meets in somewhat smaller sections. It's sections of 30, so it's a little unusual, but it's to help with the public speaking element of the course. In the executive MBA program, which I teach in, we teach all in a large section because content's slightly different. Um, some of it overlaps, but the it has to be adjusted for career stage. So in the executive MBA program, we not only work on some of the individual level skills, we also work on how do I work effectively as a spokesperson in an organization and for an organization. So people need to learn a little bit about organizational communication, about corporate communication and crisis communication. Must have been an interesting year to kind of think about communication just given everything that we've kind of been through here. Because I feel like 
so much of the pandemic, I don't think this is my own opinion. I actually think there are a lot of people, so much of navigating the pandemic is about communication and about messaging. Has that been interesting for you to kind of coming with, with your lens and your experience to think about this? Fascinating to me. Fascinating to me. I actually, I started the leadership communication course uh, last term or last time I taught it with a, a case uh, about Zoom. And it, it's about the company Zoom and how they had um, actually poised to become um, who they became in the pandemic. And it had everything to do with not only the platform that they had developed and the nature of this sort of this um, medium that all of us are pretty intimately involved with now um, to the kind of organization and the values that it has and, um, and even the competitiveness of it. Um, so um, that the, the communication environment has been radically different since our lockdown. Although there, there have been seeds or threads already ongoing, but they became more visible during uh, the pandemic. Uh, and so I think the first wave of realization around that for most people was just having to change to a largely mediated um, form of working relationships. And that is at least for people in white collar jobs. And then um, the, the next wave of that was um, the differences that we found between people's work lives and their home lives and how we had to then be more inclusive of our understanding of who people are and what drives them. Um, and then there was sort of the economic fallout that that the pandemic differently affected different social groups within a workplace and of course in broader society. And then in all of that, you have the overlay of political tensions. You have um, also the um, emergence and reawakening of um, uh, understanding about racial disparities in this country, both through the different ways that the pandemic affected different um, racial groups. And of course, the killing of George Floyd, which caused um, many people to re-examine um, what is the role of race in society and in the workplace. So it's been, I think, a year and a half of difficult conversations, but also thoughtful conversations. So in some ways, I'm kind of, I've, it, it was jarring to experience, but I hope that we'll be able to take some of the things we've learned from it as we go forward into whatever the next normal is going to be. I wanna ask you one more question before we kind of shift into to some of your, your ideas to action articles and, and some of the things that you've been working on around mindfulness and resilience. Wonder what your research areas are. It's a little bit of a leading question kind of setting up some of the stuff to come, but talk to us a little bit more about your areas, areas of research. Yeah, they have, um, when you've, I've been at Darden for over 25 years, and when you've got a career that long, they tend to come in waves, right? You, um, at least they have for me. So my uh, original interests were in women and leadership, and uh, I helped to co-write a book about women in business. And, um, and that um, 
interest in diversity and um, women, women's identity and political um, differences in society and business. That, that comes to, came with me from grad school. That was a part of my grad school life. But then um, with a topic like communication, you know, it, communication keeps changing. And so we have to keep reinventing and understanding. So when I, you know, I'll date myself, but when I was in my master's program, I had a typewriter that had a one line memory. That's it, you know? And so in my lifetime, I have had to learn about working with a PC and digital communication. And none of that was really part of my schooling. And, and this is one of my messages to, to students is that, one, we have to keep learning about communication as we go. It's not sufficient to just stick with what you know. It's just going to keep changing. So, you know, all the experiences that many of us have had and throwing ourselves into Zoom, um, that is yet another layer. Um, it was not necessarily one that many of us would have chosen, but here we are. And now many of us are experts in this medium because we have to be. So over time, my interests have evolved and changed. Once I um, got to Darden and really understood business, I was interested in corporate communication, particularly reputation. And this was an extension of the work I had done in grad school because I had been interested in literary reputation. How is it that um, a person who's uh, an author, and in this case, a couple of women authors, tell their life stories, both for themselves, but also for public audiences. And in some ways, it walks a line between being authentic, um, but also strategic. And I think anybody, and I think this is probably true for audience members, if you're thinking about writing your essays for Darden, you are you are dealing with this dynamic. You are you have to make decisions about what do I include, what do I hold back, um, how do I put my best foot forward, but still be a real person, you know. And so, all of those questions are also true for companies. Companies have that they have their mission statements, their value statements. How do they walk their talk, and how is it that we as both organizational members, but also members, you know, consumers and members of the public. How do we make judgments about who's authentic, who's just kind of mailing it in, who who um, is actually talking out of both sides of their mouth, you know? And when worse comes to worse, there's a crisis and reputation has been damaged. How do you repair that? So that was a second stream of research, and then. The third was this work around leadership presence and leading mindfully. And that came out of a personal interest. I'd always taught public speaking as part of what I've done. Uh, and out of a personal interest, I took a mindfulness-based stress reduction program in which I learned how to manage stress and in my case, grief and, um, and what I realized was that the techniques I was learning for dealing with anxiety in a more productive way would be super helpful to my students. And this fit in pretty well with some experience that I had in acting. And it turns out that actors have to also deal with that stage fright. It's just kind of an occupational hazard um, for actors. 
So I started blending these two things together, this acting and mindfulness. And then I became a yoga teacher. I did some yoga teacher training and I started weaving these together to help students feel um, more centered within themselves so that they could create presence with an audience. And that really took off. Um, students responded well to that. We, I did a course called Communicating Through Leadership Presence that I taught in the auditorium at Darden on the stage, because when you're a leader, you're always on stage. So let's experience that and let's get comfortable with being in that space and understanding what comes up for you personally, but also what turns an audience on um, in a space like that. Uh, and that has then carried over into the Leading Mindfully work, which I do now. Well, thank you for walking us through all of that. I, as, a, as a bookworm, I really want to ask about what, what female authors you were focused on. Um, and would you mind sharing? Oh, of course. I'm, I very rarely get to talk about this these days. Um, so Zora Neale Hurston uh, and Eudora Welty. And um, Zora Neale Hurston, you know, for those who don't know, um, uh, wrote, uh, we looked at their autobiographies specifically. And um, Zora Neale Hurston wrote um, Dust Tracks on the Road. And uh, it was about her life story. And she was a very interesting person. She is identified with the Harlem Renaissance um, period, although she's so much more interesting and broader than all of that too. She was actually a, a leading anthropologist at the time. Um, and had an incredibly interesting background. And she developed a story about race relations that today I think we would recognize as a multicultural point of view. But at the time it was somewhat rejected by her black colleagues because it wasn't seen as black enough. And, um, and so that was just interesting to understand like how did she work her, her reputation around that? Interestingly, later in life, um, uh, she fell on hard times and she was buried in an unmarked grave until Alice Walker rediscovered her. Um, and so, uh, and Eudora Welty was interesting. You may know her as a great Southern um, short story writer. And she wrote an autobiography called um, One Writer's Beginnings. And in that uh, autobiography, it's interesting because it's not all that much about her. It's a lot about her parents. And it, you'd, you'd have to ask why, why would she do that? Well, because um, one of her parents was from Ohio and the other was from West Virginia. And it started to paint a different picture of her. She wasn't only a Southern writer, she was an American writer. And I think she was trying to not be put in a box. And the, the autobiography actually began with a series of lectures at Harvard. So in any case, it, they're both very interesting. And then I put them in combination and now I'm going on in too much detail, but that's my, uh, one of my fascinations. But how does that relate to business? That's probably your next question. I, everybody has to figure out what am I gonna tell in my story, right? And it's gotta be true to who I am, but it also has to intrigue and grab the audience. And, um, and so how do I want to shape my public image is 
I think something that every business leader has to think about and certainly companies do too. So um, that's the connection. Well, I appreciate that because we've been hosting, this is a time where we're doing a lot of admissions webinars. We're doing these new admissions workshops. And a lot of the content that we've been sharing is focused on you know, crafting your narrative, doing all that self-reflection, introspection, particularly in the application. What do you want to prioritize about yourself as you're communicating through this kind of initial introduction to who you are? What's most important? to you to, to, to communicate to the admissions committee as you're telling your story. Obviously, there's also an interview uh, for folks, uh, typically by invitation only in our process. And so then that's a chance for you to tell your story. But you're right. There are editorial decisions that you're making as to how you present. You can't say everything. So what do you say? Um, and, and that's really important work. I appreciate it. It's rare that we get to talk admissions tips on these sessions, Lily, really, but I, I couldn't resist. So oh, yeah, that's great. well, let's yeah. talk about an ideas to action article series you, you published over this past year about leading mindfully during COVID-19. Um, what do you mean when you when you say leading mindfully? What does that mean to you? Because I feel like that gets thrown around a lot. And I just want to make sure for our attendees, we're all, we're all on the same page here. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for asking that question. And it's a good one. So um, first, let's start, uh, start off with mindfulness. What is mindfulness? So simply put, sort of in vernacular language, uh, mindfulness is a quality of attention. It's a way of paying attention with an attitude of open curiosity and goodwill. And um, this is much more difficult to do than it sounds because um, our minds are often distracted uh, or we are often on autopilot. And it's difficult to find our focus and hold it intentionally because there's always something else coming up, whether there's a voice in your head that's kind of doing another like, you know, backseat driver type of thing on you, uh, or it's something new, bright, shiny object in your environment, or it's the crisis du jour and it spreads you all over the place. So there are many reasons why we operate in a less than mindful way. What mindfulness is trying to say is that if you train your mind in a way to hold your attention in an intentional way, you'll be able to make better choices. And if you make better choices, presumably you'd be able to perform better as well. So mindfulness is, even though it's often associated with calming down, it's really about making better choices. So sometimes the the story gets stuck at the, well, let's just all calm down. But in, why are we calming down? Because when our hair's on fire, we're not going to make a good choice. So we'll calm down in order to get more centered so we can make a more clear-eyed, clear-minded choice in the moment. Um, so that's what mindfulness is. And there are a whole set of exercises. Some of them come from traditional sources like um, mindfulness meditation but you can achieve a mindful state in other ways. And I, I just ask everybody who's listening, you know, what helps you feel clear-minded and intentional? Some of us, it's going out for a good run. Others of us, it might be prayer. Others of us, it might be taking your dog for a walk in the woods, you know, like your happy place, some something that gives you perspective or somebody going on a hike and looking out over a mountain, you know, everybody's got their own way of doing it. And so what I'm trying to help people say is, is 
how do I make this a habit in my life? And if it becomes a habit, how can I then infuse that into other things that I do, like leading? And so the connection there with um, leading mindfully and communication is a huge part of leadership is how can you be present and aware in a way that helps you make good choices in the moment and over time um, so you can perform better, your team can perform better, and your organization can perform better. So that's what leading mindfully is really about. So if mindfulness for yourself is how to develop a certain quality of attention, then leading mindfully is about developing a collective attention, a certain quality of collective attention. So when you think about it, where a leader's attention goes, the organization attention goes. So your own example is powerful that way. Um, There are other ways that leaders can use their words as giant pointing devices to get people's attention biggest impact you can have is the presence you have when you're not there. How do you know what to do when your boss isn't standing there right there in the room telling you what to do? How is that? You know, what has already been set in place to guide your attention so that when you, you know, you come in in the morning and you've got a hundred emails in your inbox, which ones do you decide are the most important to look, to answer? So that's that's kind of where I'm coming from with that term. Is that does that help, Brett? I think so. I think so. And so my next question is: uh, I have some ideas to why you were particularly interested in looking at this topic uh, during this time time of COVID nineteen. But I was I was curious about what the inspiration for the series was. Oh well, it was the lockdown itself. Um, so this was a topic I'd already been interested in, but uh, when the lockdown occurred. Uh, I think it was a great opportunity to be aware of how we were reacting to it. And I think everyone had a different way of reacting. And you think back to your own experience of what those first couple of weeks of the lockdown were like, uh, and think about examples of people in your workplace and how they handled it. You know, there are some people who took a suck it up kind of, you know, attitude like, okay, let's, let's go fix this thing. (laughs) And then there were others who were quite bewildered and a little adrift. Uh, And all of those are examples in a more naturalistic setting of, um, of the fight or flight or freeze response. So what happened for most of us is that our nervous systems got activated and this would be the sympathetic nervous system. Um, And the sympathetic nervous system uh, activates when we feel a sense of fear or threat. And depending on our makeup or personal history or situational things, we may choose to fight, to fight back, right? Or be defensive. Uh, We may choose to to run and hide, uh, or we might freeze, uh, you know, deer in the headlights. And on one level or another, I think each of us was having to confront that for ourselves. But then from a leadership standpoint, you've got a team of people and some are fighting and some are fleeing and some are freezing. And how do you get everybody kind of uh, back in some kind of alignment? 
So it would seem like a natural thing to put together at the time, although quite honestly, I hadn't really put together leading mindfully and crisis per se together. But now, of course, like, duh, it makes a lot of sense. Um, so I um, decided to write a series. And the first one was about um, some techniques I call see it and name it. The second one was about taming it. And the third one was about reclaiming it. And each article or each episode in this series took on each of those things to explain what does that really look like from a leading mindfully perspective. Well, I'm curious about this kind of leading during crisis, because I would think this would be a very rich area because there's crises happening all the time and varying degrees of intensity. And I mean, you think about corporations, businesses, feels like, you know, particularly really large ones, there's always something happening. So um, what do you enjoy about looking at, at these kind of questions? What, what, you know, what, what, is, what energizes you about this work? Yeah, I, I think people live in fear of crises um, and or, or their own reactivity causes them to um, respond to them in ineffective ways. And so what I like is um, thinking that leading mindfully might be empowering for people and it would keep them from making mistakes that are way more costly um, than if they were to respond more effectively. So I think that's the thing that, that gets me the most excited. And the, I guess the other thing is just given my background in the humanities, I, I think that the last year and a half has brought out a humanity in business in a much more explicit way that I hope will stay. Um, and this is important on a number of levels. And I think for us at Darden, it's a big one. I look at our commitment, for example, to stakeholder theory and ethics as um, being important for seeing the humanity in other people in other positions and trying to make space for them. And when you're hyper-focused and only thinking about yourself, you lose the ability to do that. And it comes at a cost. cost comes at a cost to yourself, it comes to a cost to other people, it comes to a cost of society. And so this year, I think, has resensitized many of us. Um, the challenge is how to not actively forget all of that as we go back to whatever is next as some, something that feels a little less immediately charged um, or immediately imperiled. So I, I, I think a leading mindfully approach might be able to help with that because of the way that it invites you to um, keep revisiting this idea of intentionality, keep revisiting this idea of being curious and open of having goodwill for other people so that it offers an opportunity to maybe inoculate um, against the next, um, the, the next problem. Well, let's talk about the work that you're doing with nurses and healthcare professionals. Mm -hmm. um, 
this past year, I mean, there's been a lot of discussion about just how much strain healthcare providers are under just given COVID-19. And it's not a new story. Let's be very clear that this is actually one that has gone back for a long time. I think COVID-19 has brought it into relief for a lot of folks and made it very, very clear. Um, what's been interesting to you about working with this population? What, what have you learned, particularly over this past year and a half? So uh, I think the the portrayals that we've seen in the press about the um, dramatic impact of COVID-19 on healthcare workers are, are very important for us to take pause and to understand. Shortages of good staffing in healthcare have existed for a long time. And it was the pandemic and also the high volumes of patients coming in with a uh, an illness that people didn't know how to treat that really threw all of this into high relief. It is important to not only focus on the suffering of those people who were um, trying to care for others who had COVID, but it's also important to think about what were the conditions that made that so dramatic in the first place. What broke down in the system that needs to be fixed for the long term? The other thing I'd like people to, to realize is that this experience of um, healthcare provider burnout is endemic. Um, it was not caused by COVID. It was just made more visible by COVID. And in fact, the National Academy of Medicine has declared a national emergency of kinds. Um, regarding clinician well-being and mental health. And this goes well beyond COVID. There are other issues um, that may affect a caregiver's um, ability to be resilient. And some of them are part and parcel of the culture of care, healthcare. Um, people who enter a profession like that want to be helpers. And sometimes they help at their own expense. And that is a cultural thing that is very, very tough to work with. So in business where we have sort of a, some have a suck it up kind of culture that exists in healthcare also. And we really need to help people who are the care providers to learn how to care for themselves so they can care for others, but also so they can change really intransigent problems in, in healthcare. So it's, it's a sticky wicket. It is complex. Um, so it, what, what's been interesting to me about it, um, working in nursing and I, I say nursing, but it's really all of healthcare. I have students who are, are, um, medicine, um, school of medicine students too, um, is the deep irony of, uh, a profession that is built around care and yet, the people themselves don't care well for themselves. They don't care very well for the, each other. There's a fair amount of um, uh, incivility in the workplace, um, even bullying uh, and even some violence that occurs in the workplace in healthcare settings. You know, if that's happening in an industry where it's supposed to be part of a core value, that makes me think, let's go back and look at business all over, right? We may not have a core value around that, but there may still be some of those same behaviors, the same 
tendencies and um, and traits that we need to take a look at. So I I haven't written it yet, but I have in mind a, an article that I want to read uh, write about you know everything um, business people need to know that nurses can teach them um, about about doing business. So we'll have well in the future look for that. <laughs> Well, it's so interesting to hear your your points here because I, I can't think of another time. I mean, it feels like ever since the Affordable Care Act passed, there has been so much interest in healthcare, healthcare delivery. How are we doing this? Is it affordable? Is it accessible? And you've had other conversations bubble up over this past year and a half. So there's, there's a lot of attention, a lot of energy around healthcare, but it also feels like there's an intransigence to like fixing some of, some of the stuff. So it must be interesting to have the space in your classroom where you have all these people coming together, having these really what feel like crucial conversations. Yeah, it, um, there's so many layers to it. Uh, what's important in my classroom is that I have, this is a course I call um, Leading with Presence in Healthcare, and it has uh, nursing students in it, uh, medical students. Some of them are medical researchers as well. So there'll be scientists uh, and Darden students. So people who will have some kind of administrative role. Some of them have past degrees in nursing, for example. Some of them are dual degree students with our uh, MD and MBA programs. So there's a real mix. And in healthcare, there's a focus right now on interprofessional education. Each profession historically comes up through its own set of requirements, professional commitments, philosophies, and so forth, because there are different roles, but that comes at a cost because sometimes we don't understand well how we fit together as a team. And so the thought is that by bringing people together in an interprofessional setting, we can have difficult conversations even in the classroom. So we had a a really good one um, last year that was between a woman who was currently working as a nurse, as a NP um, in a cellular therapy unit, and then uh, a medical student. And they were, she was talking about the, the medical student and she were talking about the frustrations at work. And the um, NP was talking about this struggle that she was having with her partner um, who they partner in attending and an NP together. So they work together, um, doctor and nurse. And the medical student tried to um, comfort her by saying, well, you know, I know it's difficult, you know, the hierarchy and everything. And it was interesting because that, that really lit her up. And she said, well, no, it actually is not a hierarchy. It is a partnership. And so there was this moment in class where, there was a little bit of schooling back and forth um, between the two to come to a common understanding of what is the relationship between a nurse practitioner and an attending. And um, at least from a nurse practitioner's point of view, they would like to see themselves as another professional at the table who helps the doctor do better what the doctor needs to do. And um, that was an interesting moment. I can imagine. Was it interesting? Is it interesting, given your background in communications, to work with healthcare professionals who are oftentimes frontline communicators to people under high stress, ambiguous situations? You know, you don't have all the answers. 
probably making your best guess at times. I mean, that has to be fascinating. It is. And well, and then we're not even talking about really patient communication. And um, so in that setting, but I think others as well, a leader's job is to create psychological trust in the team so that these kinds of conversations can happen. And one of the things I like to do the most is um, create an atmosphere in my classes that is um, that sense of psychological safety so that a conversation like we, we had, like I just described, can happen without pointing fingers and defenses coming up. In fact, we, we use that as, okay, notice how you start to feel a little prickly and stay with it. Just notice it and then take a breath, recenter yourself and continue in the conversation, focusing on what your intention is, which is just maintain the connection with the other person, not to win the point. So, and so that takes a, a certain amount of intentionality and presence of mind, wherewithal, um, to be able to manage in the moment. So we use a class as sort of a, a crucible for learning that basic, basic skill. But then what we want is for people to be able to generalize that. So to change these really big systems, that's going to take a lot of mindfulness and a lot of intentionality. And, and so this bit about self-care, yeah, it's self-care so you can take care of patients, but even more importantly, so you can be resilient in the face of intransigent problems, big giant systems um, that feel completely impersonal and as if, you know, there's not even a wizard behind the machine. It is just a machine and it's just kind of doing its own thing. But we have to remember people create systems. So people can change systems. It's not easy. It takes a lot of resilience to do it. So that's another piece of the, of the course. Well, we talked about leading mindfully. I do want to make sure we have a little bit of airtime for resilience. You've done a lot of work around resilience. What do you mean uh, when you talk about resilience? Yeah. You know, I, I read it, uh, an article that brought together um, academics from many different um backgrounds, some philosophy, some from ecology, some from um, physics even, and healthcare and psychology. And they tried to come up with a common definition. And it, it really became a pretty simple one, which is that resilience is the ability to bend and not break, and perhaps even grow as a result of an arduous experience. So what are those things that help us accomplish this? The thing that's really exciting to me right now is looking at something called post-traumatic growth. How is it that you and I could go through a difficult circumstance and um, you grow, but I don't, I stop in my tracks. What is it about Brett that's different? And there have been researchers that have looked at this and they look at a population where you can imagine this would be evident. And that is with people who have been soldiers who've been part of combat. And there have been all kinds of studies to understand why, why is it that some people end up with PTSD and some people don't. They looked at factors like um, demographics, traits, pre-existing mental health issues, going on down the line. One of the factors that they found matters the most is what the leader of the unit has modeled. 
if that leader can model a growth mindset in the face of uh, a major threat or um, potential harm or actual harm, that had a buffering effect for rates of PTSD and depression afterwards. We can teach people that. We can teach leaders how to help themselves have a, a growth mindset, but then also by extension, help their teams have a growth mindset. And so how do you do that? It, it um, requires talking about how you, we relate to one another, right? And so like the old band of brothers thing, right? We band of brothers, we mighty, mighty few. Shakespeare had it. Um, but being able to talk with each other and the kind of relationship that we want to have with each other is an important piece of it. It's also recognizing personal strengths, like, wow, we went through this. It was really hard, but I discovered a, a strength in myself or I saw a strength in you that you didn't even know you had. That's a way of celebrating growth, right? That's a way of calling out. This is the way we overcome obstacles. Um, it goes on down the line. And so that, that's been a fascination for me lately is how can um, a leader make comments, notice out loud those moments of growth, but then also encourage conversation that helps to have the growth conversation. Like, what did you discover about yourself, Brett, during the pandemic that turned out to be a strength you didn't know you had? You know, that's the kind of thing you can do. All right, Lily. Well, we've got some incoming MBA students, I'm sure, on this session. We also have people approaching the application process. And so I wonder if you might have some advice for people moving into, I mean, certainly MBA programs, hard, it's challenging. There's a lot of learning curves. The application process, you know, you're working on the application, but there's uncertainty, there's ambiguity in the process. I wonder what advice you might share with our attendees today. Yeah, I think that's, that's when you think about the uncertainty factor, when you're in that application process, for sure, um, that's one of them. I think one of the things you can do to help yourself is to be, get really clear about why you're doing what you're doing. And um, I would recommend that you spend some time talking to trusted others or spending some time in reflection, maybe journal writing, um, that helps you identify why is it that you wanna to go to business school in the first place. Um, Many people want to go because they are looking for career progression or they want to improve their salary or something like that. But I think those are not the kind of sustainable motivations that will keep you going through a difficult process. Develop a vision for yourself. If you were to go to business school, what will that enable you to do to contribute to something else, to making something else good. Having that arrow pointing outward about what are you gonna change in the world? How are you gonna help solve a problem? Those are the kinds of motivations that feel cleaner to me than the ones that are all about, well, I need to make a salary and I need to look like this. And, and you know, I need to have a good car and I need to have a new house and I need to do this. All of those things, put an added pressure on you and they're driven by 
a sense of ego that is not as healthy, I think, as would be desired on a long-term basis. So and get, get your ego straight <laughs> if you can and, um, and be clear about why it is that you want to um, pursue a business education. What will it enable you to uniquely contribute in the world? How can it be different because you went through this experience? All right, we've asked the office hours participants, the faculty members who've been gracious enough to join us for this session, uh, for these sessions, for some reading recommendations uh, for folks who may be interested in learning a bit more about the topics that we've talked about today. We've touched on so many things, Lily, but for someone who might be interested in mindful leadership and resilience, anything that you might recommend here. Yeah, um, well, I'll tell you two books that I'm um, reading this summer. Uh, one is called Chatter. And Chatter is by Ethan Cross. And it's all about how we talk to ourselves. And what is the function of self-talk? What, why is this little voice going on in our heads all the time? How can we um, manage it and harness it for our better good? And then um, another book is called Say What You Mean. Say What You Mean. And this is by Oren J. Soffer. Um, he is a mindfulness teacher but he, what he's doing is he's applying principles of mindfulness to communication. And, um, and this is a book that I wish I had written. Um, <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading that as well. Well, Lily, we'll always take a guest with props. Thank you so much for, for bringing those books with you and for sharing all your insights and expertise with our attendees today. It's been such a fascinating conversation. Thank you, Brett. And that was my interview with Professor Lily Powell, a member of the communication faculty here at the Darden School of Business. As always, if you have any comments, suggestions, requests, anything you'd like for us to cover here on the podcast, we're all ears. We can be reached at Darden, that's D-A-R-D-E-N, at virginia.edu. Until next time, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening.